Jones, and welcome to Booklist's Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and whatever other bookish, library-adjacent topics suit our fancy. I'm Susan McGuire, Senior Editor for Collection Management and Library Outreach at Booklist, and in this episode, we're going to talk about books. I know, what a shakeup. I should clarify, we're not just talking about any old books. We're talking about the 2019 Editor's Choice, aka the best of the best books we reviewed all year, the giant list of which we release on the internets, then compile and present in our January 1st issue. Now you may be thinking, Susan, what is this we you keep mentioning? Great question, you. We is us. It's all of the editors here at Booklist, which frankly is only a fraction of the team that makes Booklist go, but... Well, it's editor's choice, so it seemed like the editors were the right people to talk to. So that's what's happening in this episode. Three conversations about editor's choice. First, Sarah Hunter, Ronnie Corey, Maggie Reagan, and Julia Smith talk about the Books for Youth list, patterns and trends in youth publishing, and the surprising appeal of the naked mole rat. Then, Heather Booth and I talk about what was hot in audio for 2019, including the rise of the full cast. Finally, Donna Seaman, Annie Bostrom, and I dive into our faves from the Books for Adults list and what's coming in 2020. As always, all of the books we talk about, including the full Editor's Choice lists, can be found in the show notes on booklistonline.com shelf-care. And I tell you what, this set of notes is a doozy. We talk about a lot of books, y'all. You know what? Instead of talking about how many books we talk about, how about we just start talking about books? Let's do it. Hi, I'm Sarah Hunter, editor of the Books for Youth section at Booklist Magazine, and I'm here with my fellow editors to talk about the very exciting process of choosing our 2019 Editor's Choice books. There are, what, 67 or 68 titles on our list this year we have been diligently reading for months and we're really excited to tell you about some of them and our process and the things that we noticed today so i'll hand it over to my fellow editors to introduce themselves hi i'm julia smith i'm a senior editor in the books for youth section do you want to tell us a little bit about your areas of expertise I don't know if it's expertise, but my passion will be for middle grade novels. So I definitely read the most of those, though it is fun to be part of this process because it kind of forces you to also look beyond what you normally gravitate towards. And you can find some really amazing things when you're pushed that way. I am Ronnie Curry, associate editor in the Books for Youth department, and I am the newest member of the team. If I have one passion myself, I would say middle grade as well, maybe middle grade fantasy. And I do love picture books as well. Hi, and I'm Maggie Reagan, also a senior editor in the Books for Youth department. I came in as a YA fantasy super fan, and then in more recent years, I've started picking up a lot of nonfiction, and I don't know how that happened. (laughs) So that's been a fun turnabout. So now let's talk a little bit about our process. Uh, We started with a short list of favorites, and then we read a lot. And we had some contentious meetings with some strong feelings. 
maybe some hurt feelings. But we're really happy with how our list turned out. We think it has a lot of like idiosyncrasies. There's some, there's a really good variety of titles encompassing nonfiction and fiction and a wide range of ages. Do you guys want to talk about some of your favorites? Ronnie, it sounds like you want to go first. (laughs) There's an excellent book that didn't get a whole lot of coverage this year called The Usual Suspects by Maurice Broadus that I wanted to shine a little light on. It's pitched as a middle grade noir, which I think is interesting in itself. And it's pitched as Encyclopedia Brown meets The Wire. And it kind of speaks to certain trends that I am enjoying this year, Um, one of which is kind of an older middle grade that... You know, it's not necessarily higher age content, but it sort of respects the reader in a way through kind of a more um, nuanced and sophisticated narrator. Um, And I really think this book nailed that. Goodness, I did love a lot of books this year, too. I'm going to say one of my favorites. This was like a real heartwarming sort of pick for me was the very, very far north. It is an adorable series of stories that's good for sort of the elementary-aged readers. It's past a beginning reader, a little past early chapter book, but, you know, it still has adorable illustrations to kind of help readers along and stay engaged with the writing. But the story follows a polar bear named Dwayne on his journeys in the (laughs) Arctic and all the different animals he befriends. And he loves to come up with creative names for his surroundings. And it's very much in the spirit of Winnie the Pooh. So if you were a fan of those stories, then this is definitely one for you. Uh, We had to do so much cutting books off of this list that I no longer like anything. (laughs) Because I had to make myself not love them anymore so I could take them off the list. But I did just reread one one of the books from my list because it has a sequel coming out in a couple of months. And I didn't remember anything about the first book, so I had to I had to refresh my memory. So I read the first book, which was a book that I starred and that we put on our list this year. And that's We Set the Dark on Fire by Taylor K. Mejia. Um, and that was a debut this past year. And rereading it was a fun experience because you always remember about 20% of it. And I got to revisit it and remember everything that I loved about it. And you get kind of a, a second wind experience. And it's just really, it was a debut, but it was just such a sharp book. Um, And that is a YA sort of fantasy. It takes place in like an alternate world. And it's just about a world where these, these men take two wives and one is supposed to be their political partner and one is like the, the woman that they have children and make a home with. Um, and it's about a girl who is his first wife who's supposed to be his political partner, but she quickly learns that her new husband does not see her as his equal and she forms a pretty intense relationship with the second wife. And it was really interesting to read last year and I think even more startling to read this year. And now I'm moving on to the sequel, so that should be fun for for this for 2020. I'd like to call some attention to the graphic novels we ended up putting on our list this year. I'm also the graphic novels editor as part of my job, and there there was just such a wealth of really strong graphic novels that came out this year, and it was really hard to pick the ones that we did end up putting on the list. 
Two I want to mention are Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, which is this really fantastic coming-of-age story about toxic relationships and prioritizing your own needs, and the artwork is just phenomenal. I love when an illustrator can capture mood in like gesture and like body positioning and the illustrator Rosemary Valero O'Connell, this one was written by Mariko Tamaki too, don't want to leave her out, did such an excellent job of using bodies to show emotion and I thought that was just so great. Uh, The other one I really loved this year was Jen Wang's Stargazing which was a really surprising middle grade friendship story. It started out as like a really typical friendship story, which is wonderful. But then it took a a turn in a direction that I wasn't expecting at all. And it got so much deeper and more poignant and complex. Jen Wang's artwork and that one, she's another person who's really good at capturing emotion in body positioning. I think that might be one of my favorite things in graphic novels, now that I find myself talking about it more than once. (laughs) But she does such a great job with facial expressions using just a few lines, really. Like her faces look really simple when you think about the actual marks that she uses, but they carry so much weight in them. And that's just such a fantastic accomplishment. I would be remiss if I did not mention Poco and the Drum um, (laughs) after saying that I enjoyed picture books. This came from the Paula Wiseman imprint at Simon, and it is about the frog family, and they gift their daughter Poco a drum, surprise, which she takes out into the wild and starts marching to the beat of her own drum, as it were. And uh, it's this really hilarious and just odd kind of progression of events that I would argue has some feminist undertones Um, You Be the Judge. Um, And it's got this really beautiful, dense, colored pencil, watercolor art by Matthew Forsyth, by the way. Possibly my favorite this year, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Were there any books that you read this year for Editor's Choice that you were genuinely surprised by? I can think of one (laughs) for me. I hate naked mole rats. I think they are the most disgusting animals on the planet. And I generally am like pretty tolerant of weird animals. But there's something about naked mole rats that I just can't stand. So I was all set up to hate Sweetie. But I didn't. I loved it. It was great. Yay! (laughs) Sweetie was on my list of books to mention because it's just... So cute and weird. Sweetie is a very awkward naked mole rat. This is a picture book by Andrea. Oh no. Zuiel? I'd say Zuiel. Okay. We only only read that name. It's true. I'm sorry if I have butchered that. But yes, Sweetie is what her aunt refers to as a square peg in a round hole. And she's trying to figure out how to be herself and still sort of fit in with the world around her. And it's just a very charming look at her personality and, like, just sorting out how to be in the world. I don't know if it is fair to say that I was surprised by this book because this author is very talented, like, provenly. But uh, a book that got me out of a intense reading slump was uh, Lamar Giles' middle grade debut, which is The Last Last Day of Summer. And it was his first middle grade book, so that was kind of a surprise. But it was this, basically the premise of this book is that on the last day of summer vacation, this 
strange man with a stopwatch appears and freezes time for everyone except for these two cousins who like to solve mysteries. And they have to go on this crazy adventure to figure out what the heck has happened. And it's got this kind of old school phantom tollboothy vibe. And it is just this nonstop adventure that was a ton of fun and really good. And not everyone, not, not everyone, it's sometimes difficult, I think, for YA authors to make that transition from YA to middle grade or sometimes the other way around without kind of stumbling as they try to figure it out. And he did it so well. And he really navigated the working from a from an older audience to a younger audience really well. And that was just a delight. And then something else that did genuinely surprise me, I think, even though this is another author that I trust, was A.E. Kaplan's We Are the Perfect Girl, which I went into with a lot of skepticism because it is a Cyrano retelling and I think those are impossible to do. Um, there have been some very bad ones. <laughs> it's just it's a catfishing story. And it's it's so hard to make a kind of contemporary teen rom-com out of a catfishing story. Because people try to make them cute. And it's not cute. I can't really say anything without spoiling it. But she did a really, really good job. And it's just really funny. And it handles a lot of complicated ideas very, very well. And if you need a good friendship story or a good just... Story for any sort of 17-year-old going going through a tough time of self-discovery, that is the book for you. If we're talking about delight as well as surprise, which it seems we are, I would add Sal and Gabby Break the Universe by Carlos Hernandez, which is one of the Rick Riordan Presents books this year. Just, he's a debut, so surprise there. But just, especially the first 70 pages, one of the most delightful reading experiences I've had it's kind of, to me, it's one of the hardest things for an author to do to convince the reader that the characters are these incredibly smart people. And there's this sort of back and forth game throughout the beginning where Sal and Gabby are trying to outsmart each other. And it's just fantastic. And throughout the book, it's absolutely hilarious. And it's balanced by this really heartfelt, kind of sad backstory as well. So um, a really, a really cool achievement, I would say. Now that we've talked about some individual titles, let's talk about 2019 as a whole and some trends that we saw. Um, We mentioned, I think, or maybe we didn't, uh, that this year for Editor's Choice Deliberations, it was a really strong year for middle grade. There were a lot of really great middle grade books that came out this year, and it was really difficult to choose among all of them. Were there other things you noticed in, in looking back on 2019 that really stuck out for you? I wouldn't even call it a big trend, but we had several sort of larger YA novels that were historical fiction in a time of war, whether or not they were directly involved in fighting or just sort of home front or after effects. They were all very unique, but approached their subject with a lot more voices than I think. I usually see you had a lot of narrative threads running through. We had Julie Berry's Lovely War, Laura Ruby's 13 Doorways, and Ruta Savitas' Fountains of Silence. And so you did, you got a lot of different facets of experiences, whether they were like in the civil rights area or Fountains of Silence was the Spanish Civil War. Well, the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. The lingering effects of uh, Franco's regime in that country. So that had some very interesting parts and many incorporated art. And it was just like a very rich 
experience for all of those. I don't even know if you can really call this a trend, but I feel like something that I have been noticing, and it was probably the most clearly defined as an idea in Julie Berry's Lovely War, but it was it was definitely present in a lot of other books that we read this year, is I feel like we are coming out of a time when there were a lot of like chosen one narratives, and we're moving into an era when when that's not as much of a thing, and when a lot of a lot of the people that are featured in these books are just sort of ordinary people or they're really purposefully not special (laughs) or not people with any sort of special skills and they're just sort of one in a crowd or just one somebody who's 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 not not chosen or not special in any particular way and that's sort of like the hallmark of why that they're why they're the main character this isn't super insightful or new or maybe trendy even But own voices really seems to have settled in as sort of a happy standard, perhaps in certain ways. And and specifically, um, I noticed pretty a pretty nice number of books um, about native characters, and not just books, but really good books, which was a happy a happy thing to find. So at the mountain's base by Tracy Sorrell and Wishoyu Alvitra, Frybread by Kevin Noble Millard and Juana Martinez Neal. Etc. So that's a good, well, we'll call it a trend. That's a good trend. We haven't really talked about nonfiction much lately or in, in this conversation yet, but I've noticed a lot of nonfiction about um, civics and U.S. history, specifically like a really close examination of like how we understand history. So I'm thinking of uh, Bringing Down a President, which is about Watergate. That one is by Andrea Ballas and Elizabeth Levy uh, from Roaring Brook. And that uses primary documents to talk about the Watergate scandal, which was really cool. And then, of course, there was the Indigenous Peoples History of the United States for Young People by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Debbie Reese, and Jean Mendoza, which also does like a really close look at the way we understand history in America and really questioning how we have formed narratives about um, our own history. Those are really powerful questions to ask right now. And I really like seeing so many strong titles on that subject. I feel like nonfiction in the last couple of years and definitely moving into 2022 has been moving away from just like lining up the basic facts and really doing a really good job at digging into kind of where we went wrong too like even if you just look at like biographies of specific people it's not just like here's an american hero it's like and here's where they sucked (laughs) um which i think is really important and it's it's just i mean we're not probably not all the way there yet but i think a lot of books are are doing trying to do a much better job of painting a more balanced picture of of people who we may not have seen a balanced picture of before and at, at trying to showcase maybe people who haven't been given biographies before and kind of digging up the unsung heroes. I feel like that's something I've seen glimmers of in 2020 as well with some of the books that we've seen in the office. Just a lot more attention paid to um, lesser known stories, uh, richer, deeper, more critical understanding of how we make those stories. And as we sort of question our narratives more about our history in this country, I think we will all have a much richer understanding of how we got to where we are now, which is valuable for everyone. I think that's all we have time for. Does anybody have anything they want to say before we wrap up? No, I think... <laughs> okay. <laughs> go well, to the library. Yeah, go to the library <laughs> and check back in with us at the end of 2020. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>
danger lurks when ambitions turn deadly. Former Army Night Stalker Rick Jordan usually has his camp for foster children to himself during the winter months, but someone has visited recently, leaving a trail of blood. One of the two clues left behind tips Rick off to the identity of his visitor, who soon turns up dead. Police deem it an accident, but Rick isn't convinced. With the help of private investigator Heather Shields, he sets out to decipher the remaining clue. Except someone doesn't want them to succeed, and will stop at nothing to keep them from finding the truth. Check out Dark Ambitions by Irene Hannon, out now from Ravel. And check out the Shelf Care interview with Irene Hannon, available wherever you download the Shelf Care podcast. All right, Heather, let's talk audiobooks. All right. What, so do you think 2019 was a good year for audio? I really do. There's... There's so much. There's a lot of different stuff, a lot of diversity in the format, a lot of diverse voices mm-hmm. um, coming out, which I think is fantastic. So it was it was a good year, definitely. Yeah. And you have the challenge of picking from all age groups. Yes. I mean, I'm sorry to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's really great is that we have such a nice group of reviewers mm-hmm. that really love the audio format. They're big book people, but they also love the audio format, which is really neat because when I asked for feedback on what are the things that really stood out to the reviewers, yeah, a lot of them were able to speak so impassioned with such impassioned passion impassioned impassioned passion <laughs> about the things that were meaningful to them throughout the year which gave me an opportunity to go back and listen to those and add those to my list of things that also made me excited about audio. So that that's great. So I, I, I am the only person here with the audio thing, but I'm not alone. There's lots yeah. of people doing audio also. Yeah, nice. I mean, let's just take a moment to give 400 shout outs to our reviewers. Oh, yeah. We would be nothing without them. We love you, reviewers. <laughs> So did, was there anything that you noticed? I don't I don't want to say trend-wise, but you know, audio is getting more and more popular every year. Were there any kind of changes you saw or any directions you think it's going in or just yeah. whatever? Yeah, I I do think that with the popularity of audio and the increasing volume of audio productions that we're seeing. No pun intended. Ah, Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm seeing producers getting really creative with the way they're presenting their content. So a lot more full cast, a lot of full cast done in interesting ways, like one in particular that I think is worth noting is Daisy Jones and the Six, Uh which is a kind of a behind the music look at an imaginary band from the 70s. Yeah. And they take that format of interview and different people's recollections and brought in a huge cast of narrators. So really kind of creating an audio archive of that imaginary band, which is neat, where in the past you might see a book like that read by a male narrator and a female narrator. In this case, they really gave voice to a lot of different uh, characters, which is fun. Yeah, and that's um, Daisy Jones and the Six... By Taylor Jenkins Reid, right? Yeah. Who's yeah. who's the audio by? That is a, Books a on Tape. Yeah, Books on Tape put that out with a full cast. Cool. Um, so that the full cast, the really robust full cast is something, not just with adults, um, a really great full cast audio, which also I think uh, highlights another interesting and fun thing about audio lately is Hey Kiddo, which mm-hmm. is a graphic novel that came out last year. Scholastic recorded it with a full cast this year. And again, it's a really robust, huge full cast. This one in particular is interesting because the author reads it 
it's a it's a memoir of his life. The author reads it, and he also brings in many of his family members and friends oh, who wow. are a part of the story, who also then read themselves <gasps> in the audiobook. Wait, that's intense. I know it was really <laughs> intense, and um, he does a great author's note at the end where he talks about how this came about. He was doing stage productions of this as an audio performance. Oh, cool! And with ten narrators, and then so he brought some of those into the audio itself which is neat so like his best friend growing up is in it but his best friend's child reads himself as a child because he's a kid yeah and his his own child reads child parts parts. yeah so that's really fun and it's neat because while you see the quality of professional narrators just the way they can bring forth these characters and the nuances in their voices is Mm -hmm. just astounding having those people who have a real strong tie to the content but aren't professional narrators it brings a whole different quality to the production which is fun i wonder um if as audios become more giant if it'll do kind of what cartoon voiceover work has done where it's a lot of celebrities doing it interesting that you mention that because of all of the celebrity narrators that happened this year i think one of the biggest celebrities narrates one of these books, which is Tom Hanks. Oh. So Tom Hanks just recorded The Dutch House by Ann Patchett. Oh. Which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And so it's I think people do like hearing recognizable voices. I think big audiobook fans have their favorite professional narrators. Right. But it is a lot of fun when you're listening to a book with a voice and you can clearly place an image with that voice. So Tom Hanks is so likable and affable and he brings that storyteller likability to his narration and with a book like the dutch house that stands so firmly on its own it's easy to have such a big personality behind it right where you're not just picturing mr rogers or yes because now he's mr rogers yeah yeah so that was a fun one but the celebrity narrators the uh, one of our reviewers candy smith made a really good comment she said that when it comes to author narrators she prefers she finds that a lot of the strongest content comes from narrators who also have podcasts. Oh. So that that I thought was a really interesting comment that huh. and we do, we have had a lot of podcasters do audiobooks. Hel, uh, Helen Ellis, who did Southern Lady Code, uh-huh. she had a podcast and she records her audiobook and that was a lot of fun. I think anytime you have a narrator who comes from a strong cultural background who's able to infuse their performance with that background that adds a lot to it right so she yeah a bad southern accent listening to that audiobook in a bad southern accent it would not be fun yeah so do you have any final books you want audiobooks you want to shout out or there were there were just so many it was a really hard list to pick this year i mentioned hey kiddo i want to mention the five o'clock band by Troy Tom- Trombone Shorty Andrews. Oh, Trombone Shorty. Yeah, so he did, they did Trombone Shorty. This is a live oak production. They did Trombone Shorty a couple years ago. This is a follow-up to that picture book. And this, I think, is a great example of what a picture book can do in audio, where you have Dion Graham reading the text, who's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you have this really robust background sound that goes throughout the whole text of the book and so when you're seeing the band on the street corner in the pic- in the in the book in the illustrations you hear this band in the background and you hear footsteps and you hear food sizzling in a pan and oh. you hear street noise and so it really brings the the images to life in a way that that gives you the 
full presentation of the picture book, mm -hmm. even if you don't have the picture book in front of you. Though I do think that that is probably the best way to read an audiobook um, of a, a picture, picture book. book. Yeah. yeah, it gives you the whole picture. That's really <laughs> amazing. Yeah, so that's fun. Also, just one final note. I'm seeing more and more recordings of stage productions, like Angels mm -hmm. in America. Um, Books on Tape put that one out. The Tony uh, Kushner. The, yeah, the Tony Kushner. And so they took actors from the 2018 Broadway revival oh. and created this audiobook from that. And so we've had wonderful productions from the L.A. Theater Works. Mm-hmm. For many years, yeah. which are which are fantastic, and it's nice to see more stage productions coming into an audio context. I spoke with somebody at Books on Tape, and they mentioned that they're thinking of these as audio archives of live performances. So once oh. a play is finished, it's done. You're never going to get that cast back together again. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose you could, but it'd be hard. Um, right. In not in that same time. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, and so having an audiobook to stand as an archive of that performance, I think, is a really fantastic thing to do. It also expands the audience far beyond anybody who's able to see a Broadway production, which yeah. is a pretty small segment of the population. Right, for geographic and economic yes. and all kinds of reasons. Yeah, so that that's fun. Okay, yeah. well, oh my gosh, a wealth of audiobooks and... Um, I have to stop talking now. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Heather. We could record a whole audiobook right? and recommending audiobooks. And I look forward to hearing what you recommend for 2020. I love what you bring to shelf care yeah sure. um and everyone listen to some great books new from best-selling author lynette eason who has won numerous awards including three carol awards a daphne du maurier award and a holt medallion a former military psychologist spends her days helping people heal from their trauma and her nights fighting her own nightmares now, on the run with a client who has already saved her life twice, she must uncover powerful secrets before they both end up dead. Check out Collateral Damage by Lynette Eason out in January from Ravel. And check out the Shelf Care interview with Lynette Eason, available wherever you download the Shelf Care podcast. Okay, it's an exciting time to be alive because here we are with the adult editors of Booklist, and the three of us are going to talk about our editor's choice, what was on the list, what our faves were, the fist fights we got into over them. Sorry about that, everyone. So let's start by just going around and introducing ourselves and getting folks used to our voices. You don't have to sing. I'm Susan McGuire, and I'm Senior Editor for Collection Management and Library Outreach. I'm Donna Seaman, and I will not sing, and I am the adult books editor. I'm Annie Bostrom, and I'm associate editor in adult books. I might sing later. It is my pleasure to sort of kick this off with a little bit of news. You know, we do editor's choice every year. It's always very difficult as we look at all our starred reviews and think about the best of the best. And we were looking at the magazine this year and thinking, we review so much genre fiction. Why is there no genre fiction on Editor's Choice? Now, there were good reasons for that in the past, but this is the present. And so I'm happy to announce that we have added genre fiction, yay, yay. to the adult Editor's Choice list. 
And in that section at the end of our adult list, we have a really exciting mixture of romance, science fiction, fantasy, and crime. So I'm particularly happy about that. I also, I guess I'll take this opportunity to name our top of the list titles, which we have chosen. Um, This is, again, always an interesting exercise, but we kind of squirrel away books during the year, feel hopeful about them. And this year I'm going to announce our nonfiction first, Silver Sword and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story by Marie Arana, published by Simon & Schuster. A beautifully creative, exciting, fresh, surprising history of Latin America. Uh, Marie Arana is a terrific writer. You probably know her also as a novelist and memoirist. She's a Peruvian American writer. Our adult fiction top of the list, drumroll please, Kishat by Salman Rushdie. And this is a lacerating homage to Don Quixote. Quichotte is the French pronunciation, we're told, by Mr. Rushdie. And he, this is a present-day variation on a cross-country quest uh, by an adult traveling pharmaceutical salesman totally obsessed with television who can no longer distinguish between fact and fiction. Okay, so I am going to pass this mic along to someone else, and I'll be back with some of my faves later. Okay. I mean, you're not actually allowed to leave the room in between, just so you know. <laughs> stay, Donna, stay. So I uh, personally was particularly excited that we included genre this year because for a lot of reasons, I guess most professional of which is that I edit the science fiction, fantasy, and horror section and you know, the past couple of years I've been doing it and seeing some really amazing books that we weren't allowed, able to include on Editor's Choice. So I was glad to throw a couple of us in this year. So I'm going to take a moment to mention what I think was a real standout. I mean, there were a lot of real standouts. I mean, that's why they're on the editor's choice. There were a lot of great short story collections. I feel like this was a real great year for queer science fiction and fantasy. Less so for horror, but, but hopefully that will be growing in the future. One of the standout science fiction titles for me anyway is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone and that is from Saga. The thing I loved about it is that it is in some ways a good old-fashioned time travel story but it has this sort of suspenseful chase through time plot that is also non-linear because it has to do with time travel. So it's this really complicated, you know, put in all kinds of weaving and thread metaphors when you're talking to patrons about this book. But it also, because I am a sucker for a love story, has, uh, as my reviewer described it, a sapphic enemies to lovers romance that I very much appreciated. To me, that was a real standout in the science fiction and fantasy. My faves are because I'm deeply involved in last minute gift buying right now. Yes. Uh, mine are a couple of novels that I'm giving as gifts this year to start with. I won't share the link until after after Christmas. Uh, but the first is Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, and that's uh, published by Black Cat from Grove. And this novel made big waves already this year because it was co-winner of the Man Booker Prize with Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. So it follows 12 characters, 11 of whom are women and one is non-binary. And each person is the star of uh, their own chapter. And you're just, you know, I was just thinking about this book. It's like the thread is pulling you. It's like a 
it's more like a zip line. And I would never ride one of those things because I'm afraid of everything. But that's that's what it, it just is so effortless that you're pulled through each of these stories. You're involved in each one. And part of this is because Evaristo writes with very little punctuation and unconventional spacing and line indentation. Um, and so that's just very thrilling to me that the reading experience can be so unexpected that it takes you beyond what you normally think of as reading. And as the character stories pile up, we see them across their relationships and across generations. And it's like amazing and heartbreaking what you get to see that they don't know about each other. But also she puts together this just extremely multifaceted, you know, portrait of the black British experience. And I just could not put it down. And I'm giving that one away to someone who I won't name on this podcast. Um, another one that I'm uh, gifting this year is The Far Field by Maduri Vijay, which is also from Grove, actually. And the main character of this debut novel is a young woman named Shalini who lives in Bangalore. And she's driftless after her mother dies. She's just sort of doesn't know what to do next and her dad is kind of annoyed by this and frustrated by her inertia and he's like what are you doing with your life and before she even really thinks about it she says she's going to Kashmir and at this point the story kind of breaks into two because we see her go on the trip and she's completely unprepared for it and there's political unrest and she has no resources uh, except for the many kind strangers who help her out and then the other storyline is taking us back to Shalini's childhood and you learn about her mother and the whole reason that she's on this trip and there is a lot of really raw ambiguity in this novel and also really gorgeous love stories and family stories and it's another one that I didn't ever want to stop reading so I'm hoping my gifty thinks so too. We're hearing lots about terrific fiction, and I want to talk about my fiction faves too, but I'm going to break the pattern here. And yes, you know, me. Um, Nonfiction, all you nonfiction lovers like myself, we had some fantastic titles this year. One of my great favorites was a book. Now, I will just confess this, the sort of book that I think, I wish I'd written this. <laughs> this is called Figuring by Maria Popova. Oh, my gosh. This is such an amazing spiderwebby book, pulling in biographies of all sorts of creative, scientific, and artistic individuals, many, many women, lots of surprising connections, gorgeous writing, an unusual structure. This is from Pantheon. I can't say enough about it. Uh, it's also on the Carnegie shortlist. Imagine that. So that was a big, you know, a real love fest for me. Um, A book that gave me absolute nightmares that is terrifically written and bravely reported and shocking in every way is The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier by Ian Urbina. Uh, This is from Knopf. And oh, my God, you know, the ocean, the magnificent high seas, a land, a, a watery realm of horrifying crime. I mean, all of it, slavery, murder, indentured people left on islands. It's really amazing. And Rabina risked really life and limb to report this story. Story's never been told before. Powerfully written. Um, You sort of get distracted at times thinking you're just reading an adventure novel. But no, this was all true. So that really echoed and stayed with me um, tremendously. And one more, I guess. Um, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Now, we all are used to hearing the heartbreak of Wounded Knee. Well, David Trower, Um, wrote a very fresh history of Native American life saying the heartbeat 
meaning these cultures are alive and resilient and kind of always improvising on the edge of things for us and a very positive recalibration of our misunderstandings yeah. of Native American life. So congratulations to David Trower. He's also on the Carnegie shortlist. You know, our editor's choice is separate, but excellence always rises. Yeah. I'm going to totally change direction from those necessary but true books. You know, there's I have a soft spot in my heart for women's fiction. And there were two women's fictions that I will talk about really fast because I that's more than I probably should be talking about. One is sort of that like heartwarming, feel good, emotional truth kind of women's fiction where, you know, the woman is a mess. And then by the end, she's like, no, I'm not. And that is Linda Holmes' debut novel, Evie Drake Starts Over, from Ballantine, which my reviewer, Tracy Babiaz, reviewed. And I just feel like she should send me a thank you note for that because she loved it so much. And I also loved it so much. It kind of reminds me of Elizabeth McCracken in a way, but it's not quirky the way Bolaway was. It's just a woman who is not even aware of how much pain she's in and then she sort of slowly starts to understand herself. And anyway, it's very, you'll cry, but also laugh and feel very fond of it. So if you want a fond, warm book, Evie Drake starts over. But there were so many Jane Austen updates, which maybe is always true in women's fiction. This year, it seemed like there were a lot from writers who come from like uh, South Asian descent. And one of my faves of that, and also one of my favorite reads of the year, was Aisha at Last by Uzma Jalaluddin. And that one is from Berkeley. And it is Pride and Prejudice set in a Muslim community in Toronto. And Darcy is this guy, Khalid, who dresses very conservatively and has very strong opinions about how Muslim people should behave in Western society. And Aisha in the great tradition of Elizabeth Bennet, says things she shouldn't say sometimes, but is relatable and wonderful and great. And um, I mean, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know how it ends, but it's still such a wonderful story. Aisha at last, feel good. If I can take us back to nonfiction again, I'm going to start with sort of a maybe surprising choice for me, but uh, that's Inconspicuous Consumption the Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have by Tatiana Schlossberg from Grand Central. And our reviewer called this book a clever, informative, and unexpectedly charming examination of humans' effect on the environment. And she had me at unexpectedly charming, the spoonful of sugar, so to speak. But Schlossberg, who is a climate journalist, she hits on all the heavies like food production and fast shipping and fast fashion, um, the things that we consumers play a part in in advancing climate change. But she also is emphasizing, you know, the we're all in it togetherness and the fact that change needs to happen at governmental and institutional levels. And it's necessary and wonderful that we are seeing so many books about climate change and this book's tone made it especially noteworthy to me for this year. So um, I'm going to jump into fiction now. I want to start with Feast Your Eyes by Myla Goldberg. This novel had everything I love, women artists under pressure, drawing on some of my most favorite controversial artists, including Sally Mann and Diane Arbus. These are photographers that were considered absolutely scandalous. Myla Goldberg imagines a woman in New York 
um, in the 50s. And I will just say, to give you a hint of what else goes on in this book, that it's pre-Roe v. Wade. And there's a lot about women's rights in this book, about freedom of expression, about galleries and children and art and all the extra special pressures women face um, trying to be independent creators. Also, it's beautifully written, incredibly interestingly structured. It's set up like a museum catalog, and I don't want to give too much away about how that came to be, but I highly recommend it. It's short, but absolutely packed, really concentrated and powerful. And I don't know that this is a trend, but I found that Feast Your Eyes by Myla Goldberg, published by Scribner, coordinates really interestingly with Lost Children Archive by Valeria Lacelli from Knopf. This is about a couple, a married couple that have two children, and they are audio artists. They're audio documentarians, and they're traveling cross country. And this is a novel that actually has photographs in it. And they, each member of the family has their own archive, a traveling archive, uh, just to give you a little sense of the structure. But their story moves from a project based on the history of the Apache in the Southwest to include the crisis at the border. And there are a number of stories about lost children that will leave you very shaken indeed. Um, Lucelli is a powerful, fresh, creative writer, and I was really struck by this book. Okay, I just want to talk about one more book that will leave you shaken for different reasons, perhaps. Um, and this book, like, you guys are probably tired of hearing me talk oh, about wow. it. I, I'm speaking to Donna and Annie right now. Honestly, one of my fave books of the year was a romance, which is maybe not surprising. But it was a debut called Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston from St. Martin's Griffin. And when the galley came into the office, I read the back of it because it had a pink cover. So I'm like, I'm probably going to like this book. And it was like, there's a fictional female president of the United States and her son falls in love with a British prince. And I'm like, great. And it was like everything I wanted. I mean, there was the sort of enemies to lovers love story, which was very satisfying. But there was a couple of other elements to it. There was like her narrative voice was really surprising. It sounds condescending for someone in their 40s to say this, but it was such a millennial voice, but in a way that I just really loved reading. And there was an element of hope to the book, which was something I felt like I needed in 2019. And I think maybe going into 2020, we might think about because it's not our current political situation because the president is a woman and a Democrat, super liberal. Yes, well, but it's sort of posits a world that could be and that we are very close to. So, yeah, the best use of alternative history I've seen in years. Anyway, feel good book on many levels. Even if you just read it for the romance, you will be dazzled. I just think, I don't know, I just like cried so much at the end of it because I was like, this book is so happy. But. We don't need to get into those problems. Does someone else want to talk and rescue me from myself? As I said, we could go on and on, but we are going to end here. But I just want to mention that there's a lot of terrific books on Editor's Choice about women, women's lives uh, in the real world and fictional. And I want to say that we are kicking off, because we've already worked on our January issue, on our Women in Focus, the 19th in 2020. This is a year-long project we're doing where we're going to watch for books that are directly writing about the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920 
2020, which finally, 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 finally gave women the right to vote, although things did not go very well in the interim century for a lot of voters. But we're going to be calling those books out with just a little line that says Women in Focus, the 19th and 2020. So watch for that. I think we're in another real uh, flourishing of women's history and creative historical fiction also that deals with women and suffrage. So with that, I turn this over to your host. Okay, Susan McGuire here. Yeah, I think we have so much to look forward to in 2020. 2019 was a great year for books, if nothing else. And, you know, we've already been reading a lot of 2020 books. And I can't wait for you all, for you listeners, to get to experience what we experience when we read them. So happy reading, everyone, and happy new year. Susan McGuire, one more time. I hope you enjoyed this deepish dive into Booklist Editor's Choice for 2019. Just a quick reminder that the full list and a list of all of the books we mentioned can be found in the show notes on booklistonline.com shelf-care. Thank you all for coming on this shelf-care journey for 2019, and I look forward to sharing more bookish and library-adjacent stuff with you in 2020. From all of us at Booklist, Hooray for the future and happy reading. Books, books.